We're going to be talking about simplicity in here. Uh, and honestly, if you had the chance to read the chapter, probably we need to say no more. Uh, the chapter from the all-church study that we've been going through, uh, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry by John Mark Comer. And uh, it's, it's really a wonderful and, and challenging chapter. I do highly recommend it. Uh, there's some other sources that uh, are worthwhile in engaging in the space that so we're going to talk about this morning. Maybe we'll come across those throughout the talk, but the, that chapter is really fantastic. Um, so let, yeah, let's get into it. I want to get into it this way, though. Uh, yesterday was my daughter's birthday, Lowen Evensong Heath. Uh, she was born on March 25th. And actually, if I had been uh, aware ahead of time of what exact date she was going to be born, we might have shifted her name around. I don't know. Because I don't know if you're aware, but March 25th is also the Annunciation. Do you know about this? Are you Catholic enough to know about this? Uh, the Annunciation is when Mary receives the, the news that she's going to be swept up into God's story in this particular way, that she's going to bear the Son of God. Uh, and so that's, that's March 25th. And actually, if you're kind of keeping track, you go, 25th, that's a number that makes sense to me. Oh, yeah, December 25th. Christmas. The way that happened is actually um, they, they believed that a perfect life would mean that the beginning and the end lined up, and they realized that Jesus lived a perfect life, so they go, okay, conception, annunciation, March, or uh, sorry, uh, they, they reverse engineered it from um, the date they believed that Jesus suffered on the cross for us. They believed that that was Passover, March 25th, and then they said, okay, so the conception must be March 25th, and that means nine months. Okay, it must be, yeah, it must have been December 25th, right? So that's how they came up with that date. But I always think about this uh, picture whenever I uh, think about the Annunciation. Uh, this is by a, a, an African-American uh, painter named Henry Asawa Turner, the, the first African-American painter to be featured in the Salons of Paris. Uh, his name reached international re renown in 1891, uh, and on through the 1890s, his name was being spoken in the different, um, the different sort of high and lofty spaces of our world. Um, and that's quite an incredible story. His dad was a bishop in the AME Church, uh, the African Methodist Episcopal Church. Uh, so he was steeped in the same stories, and, and almost all of his art reflects that. Um, paintings like the Resurrection of Lazarus or uh, Daniel in the Lion's Den or this one, the Annunciation. And um, it, it's, it's really this sort of wonderful thread of the gospel finally landing 1,900 years later that, that a man whose background had been so challenged by racism and systems intended to keep him down was able uh, to be recognized for the way he was created in God's image as a creator. It really is a wonderful thread. I think we might come back to it a little bit later. But when I think about this painting, uh, the Annunciation, I always think of, uh, of the role Mary plays, not just in the story, but also in the words of the gospel. You ever think about this? In the gospel of Luke, Mary plays a role as a source. Right, she tells, we, we, we hear about the song that she sang, which is uh, traditionally called the Magnificat, which is from the Latin for the first words of this song, my soul magnifies the Lord, Magnificat. 
right? And later in the same gospel, Luke tells us at the end of chapter two that Mary stored up all these things in her heart. Why is he telling us that? Because he's saying, and I heard them from her, right? God used Mary as one of the inspirational sources for Luke. And Luke is very, very concerned about the marginalized. It's actually from Luke chapter 8 that we find out that it was women that were making it possible for Jesus to have his ministry. You get to Luke chapter 8 and you hear this list of women who were taking from their own resources and making sure that the man who had no home, even though foxes had dens and birds had nests, even this man could have this, 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 this ministry that changed everything. Right, uh, and maybe maybe Mary's the reason Luke had this concern. Look at her song. Right, you could look at at Luke chapter one verses fifty two and fifty three. Right in the, uh, near the end of the Magnificat, and she says this: He, meaning God, has brought down rulers from their thrones, uh, but He has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. Perhaps God used Mary as a prophet in Luke's life so that he would know to be very concerned about the way money and probably better said greed plays a role in our world and how God is actually coming against that greed. Luke is very concerned about it. Let me give you a whirlwind tour just to note how forcefully Luke presses on the point that God has a heart for the marginalized, for the poor, for the hungry. He, he presses on it more forcefully than even the other uh, gospel writers. Truth be told, if we wanted to know about this theme, you would simply just read through each of the gospels and realize it's prominent. But Luke actually goes, maybe we might say an extra mile in it. Like we already talked about the Magnificat found only in Luke right, from Mary. He's, he's got Mary at the center of the story, Elizabeth, her cousin, at the center of the story. When we get to the, the announcement to the beginning of the ministry for Jesus, we see what is sometimes called the Nazareth Manifesto, right? If you're following along in The Chosen, it's when Jesus went home and he talked about his role, his identity, and they wanted to kill him. And why did they want to kill him? Well, he said he had good news for the poor. Check. They were, good. they were good with that. They were the poor. Nazareth is a nothing town. Jesus being of Nazareth is a remarkable fact in history. They didn't even know where Nazareth was until the last couple of decades. They couldn't find it archaeologically because it was such a nothing town. And he's from Nazareth, and he goes home, and he says, I have good news for the poor. They go, yes, good, because we're the poor. And then he says, and actually, not just the poor of Israel, I have, I have good news for the poor of all of our surrounding uh, societies as well, even, even our enemies. He invokes stories of Elijah and Elisha uh, bringing good news to not just those who are not of Israel, but actually enemies. Even Naaman, the Syrian general, gets healed of his leprosy. And Jesus says, see, my news is for all of these people, the marginalized everywhere we go. And they said, no, wait a second. You're starting to press on our identity. You're, you're, you're hitting a sore spot with us. Don't you dare start to have the goodness of God spill outside the borders of Israel. And they wanted to throw him off a cliff. And Luke, Luke brought it to our attention. In, in Luke, the Beatitudes are slightly different. They're actually even titled differently. They're called the blessings and woes, 
right? In, in Matthew, it says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Guess what it says in Luke? Blessed are the poor. Uh, in Matthew, it says, blessed are those who hunger for righteousness. Guess what it says in Luke? Blessed are the hungry. Period. <laughs> right? Uh, and, and, and the woes gets close to home. It says, woe to the rich. Woe to the well-fed. Right? It's in Luke that Jesus says, be on guard for all kinds of greed. Be on your guard. It, it, it's, it's after you. It, it sort of even invokes some of the language we see earlier in Luke from John the Baptist when he says, the, the, the ax is already at the root of the tree. Be on your guard. Or maybe way back to Genesis chapter 4, when, when God says to Cain, sin is crouching at your door, wants to do damage to you. And Luke is saying, listen, greed wants to do damage to you. Jesus taught Luke and his, the followers, uh, Luke maybe hears it from those followers, that greed is out to get you, to do damage to you. It's in the book of Luke that we see the parable of the great banquet, where, where, where the banquet uh, master goes out and he, he, he invites all the well-to-do. He says, Come, I've got a banquet for you. Oh, I just, I, just bought a, I just bought a cow. I can't possibly go to a banquet today. That's like a first century version of I have to wash my hair. You know, it's like, it's not good. It's not a, it's not a great excuse. I'm going to be honest, right? And so all these people say, no, they can't possibly go. They have, their life is already too full. Oh, my. Too full to need the banquet of the Lord, right? And so how does this story go on? It, it's those who are in the back alleys who are invited. It's those people who are so hungry that they know they have need that come to the banquet. And that's only in Luke. Uh, it's only in Luke that we see the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, right? The rich man who wouldn't even let crumbs fall from his table for Lazarus, who was out at his gates having his sores licked by dogs. And we find out later in the parable, the rich man knows Lazarus. He calls him by name. He tries to order him around even in the afterlife. The, the rich man is in all kinds of trouble. His greed is such that he can't even let the scraps fall off his table to the poor. Greed is eating him up, right? And it's only in Luke that you see the, para, or the story sorry, of Zacchaeus. Where Zacchaeus can say the word, salvation has come to my house today. And he responds by finally undoing the chains that greed had wrapped around his neck. And he says, I'll give them back threefold. I can't have this millstone anymore. I need to be free of it, right? Yeah, it, it, greed does do damage. It does. It, it's calling to us. It, it's, it's, a, it's a rival. It's a rival to our, to our Lord. Uh, it, 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 it's, it's seeking to do damage to us. It's, it's in all our great stories too, not just in the scriptures. Notice how many stories are sort of intent upon showing the damage that greed can do to the, to the truly good life and to the truly good person. We might look at Dickens and see that Bob Cratchit is absolutely free, but our friend Scrooge is a slave to his money, right? Or we move a little bit further in British literature into the 20th century, look at Tolkien and see the way that greed plays a role 
in damaging the creatures, right? What started as this wonderful, beautiful, luminescent light of a Silmaril is now uh, leverage for power and greed, right? As you see the story advance. It's everywhere. And maybe it's Jesus that brings it most forcefully to our attention that greed is trying to do damage to us. Why does Jesus pay so much attention to this problem? Well, it's because he loves us. I know it can be uncomfortable to talk about, but the reason Jesus is willing to talk about it is because he loves us. He knows the damage that it seeks to do. He knows the threat to our well-being that greed is. He knows this. He knows three things. He knows that greed, or maybe materialism, another way to talk about it, is a religion. He knows that it's a real threat to the life of the kingdom, to the truly kingdom life, to the kingdom's culture. He knows it's a real threat, and he knows that it robs us of true joy. He knows those three things. Let's try to move through those together. Let's look at and see how Scripture says very forcefully that greed or materialism is a religion. It's a rival religion. Let's look at how it says it's a real threat to the kingdom way of life. And let's look and see how it says that it robs us of joy. It's a religion. It's a religion. Paul actually talks about it directly. If you looked at Colossians 3, 5, you would see it. He says, look, it's idolatry, guys. He says, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, comma, which is idolatry. He wants us to actually pay special attention at the end there. Ooh, greed, which is idolatry. Now, I think actually if we were parsing out a biblical theology, but all of that we would say, it's all idolatry. But notice how greed is on the list. The same list or a very similar one is found in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 5. Idolatry is at the heart of the problem. Greed is idolatry. And this, this is a real problem because as a religion, it, it, it seeks to throw us off course, throw us askew. Think of the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. One way is to think of that in ranking gods, but actually another is to say, you, you can't bring another God into my presence before me, in front of me. That's actually probably the better way to think about it. And here's why God had to say it to his people at Sinai. It's what they were trying to do. It's the sins of our fathers. It's called syncretism, right? Idolatry is not usually replacing Yahweh with a different God and forgetting about Yahweh. It's instead trying to say, I can have both, and wrapping arms and legs around all of it, wanting to have one's cake and eat it too in a religious sense. That's exactly what our fathers and mothers were doing in the Old Testament, and it's exactly what's still possible today. That we would say, listen, Jesus is good for saving my soul, but I don't want him to speak about my bank account. How dare he? I have a different God for that. Right? Jesus himself uses a word that some have interpreted to be a God, mammon. He says you can't serve both God and money. The word there is mammon. And some believe, it's a, it's a bit of a debate, but some believe that he's actually talking about a sort of personified money, uh, a, a pagan God. Whether the case may be a God or not, 
Jesus is forcefully pressing on this point, saying, you can't do both. You can't bring that idol into his presence. It's like a magnet where you have the polar opposite or the polar ends sort of pressing back against each other. You can't do it. I think we could do it even if we looked at sort of the historical scope and, and look at some of the, the, the scholars who are talking about what is it that might replace uh, theism broadly or Christianity specifically. John Mark, Comer, John Mark Comer speaks to this in the chapter, but you can see it elsewhere too. Nietzsche himself, who talks about the twilight of the gods, believing that, that the world was on a trajectory towards secularism, said when, when the gods are gone, what will replace them is materialism. He said that's what will order our lives. You see, materialism is a religion. It orders our days. It makes promises to us about what the good life is. It says, act such and such a way, and you'll get such and such results. It's a religion. Uh, the, the chapter talks about a, a French scholar named Bandelord who said, listen, it's not atheism that's replacing Christianity in Western Europe. It's materialism. People are replacing the way that they ordered their lives and wrapped their lives around God with ordering and wrapping their lives around money, right? Notice it's not money that's the problem. It's the greed. It's the way that it begins to order our lives, the way that it catches a hold of us, where it becomes a master over us, right? We have to think about sin maybe a little bit more thoroughly than we sometimes do. We think about sin as a thing we did we ought not to have done, but Paul talks about it as a power that has hold on us, Right? We think Scrooge may have thought, if an if a imaginative character can think, this Scrooge might have thought he had control of the situation, that he was in charge of the money. Look at the way he counts it over and over again. But it's money that had charge of him all along. You could look at uh, an anthropologist, an American anthropologist, won the Pulitzer Prize for a book really on the same subject. His name is Ernest Beckett. He says, listen. Here's what's happening in our world. Money is ordering our idea of what is good, what is right. We, we, we think about ethics even to say like, well, what would the bottom line be? I have to do what works. It, it will be the ends that justify the means. And it, it reverse engineers our days. It does damage to us. Maybe we could actually just sort of go out and about in Columbus and see it for ourselves. Uh, James K.A. Smith talks about the mall this way. Now, I know the mall is sort of a dying idea because we've got, you know, the online options available. But what if we did go to a mall? Or what if, what if actually we were sort of bystanders watching uh, maybe like an alien uh, culture come to Earth and visit the mall? And let's imagine they had sort of toured the Roman Forum and seen what was going on there with the temples and so forth in ancient Rome. And now let's imagine they went to Polaris, right? And there's, there's no one around to guide them. They're having to draw their own conclusions. And let's imagine they walk in through the atrium and their eyes are drawn upwards to the skylights. And, and, and let us notice the pillars holding up this, this warm and inviting space, uh, the space that whispers to us, it begins to shape our desires. What if they actually ducked into a store and they found a mannequin there 
dressed just so, positioned just so, with, with an elevated sort of pedestal that it was sitting on, what would it begin to think? What would this alien culture begin to think about the mall other than it was some sort of strange temple? Are we, am I wrong? Or is James K.S. Smith wrong? I don't think so. I think he's right. It's ordered just so. They've done their, their homework. They know how to keep you there. They know how to get you there. They know how to order your days. It's really not very much different than the ancient Roman forums with their pagan temples. You could do business there just the same. And it's those kinds of activities that Jesus was turning over temples about. You made my temple a den of thieves. You've, you've used greed to order your rituals here rather than the heart of God. Yes, it's a religion. And you can't serve two masters. Just like you see in Matthew 6, 24, you see in Luke, it says no one can serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and money. It's a religion. We need to be aware of it. Money is not the problem. It's not. Money itself is only potential. Potential for great good or a great deal of damage. And the pendulum will swing equally and oppositely if we let it. It can swing towards wonderful, beautiful kingdom life where we are spilling out the goodness of God on our brothers and sisters around the world who have been away from home for too long. And that pendulum can swing the opposite direction to where we might be willing to do damage to our neighbor in order to add a zero to the bank account. Money itself is just potential. It's the greed that's the problem. But it's a real threat to the kingdom way of life. It really is. Uh, you, you can see it really everywhere in Scripture. You can see that the damage that it does, the way it eats at you, greed, the way it, way, it, way it dehumanizes you. You ever read through Ezekiel? It gets weird. But if you do read through Ezekiel, you'll see a couple moments where you'd be like, what? Wait a second. It might cause you to pause. What if, for instance, you got to Ezekiel chapter 16, verses 49 and 50, and you noticed that Ezekiel was telling us that Sodom and Gomorrah's sins were not indeed sexual, but instead were greed. He says, here's the sins of our sisters, Sodom and Gomorrah. He says they were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. And they did not care about the hungry amongst them. He says, what is the root problem in Sodom? It's greed. It's greed. It, it, it's robbing the kingdom way of life where we are meant to, to, to reflect the image of God into creation, filling the emptiness, filling even empty stomachs. Instead, they're robbing from the poor. You can see it again maybe in the New Testament. Talk about a, a brother who's been away from home for too long, the prodigal son story. It's a, it's a real threat to the kingdom way of life to be greedy. What's the older brother, brother's problem? He sees his brother go away. He sees his father welcome his brother home. And all he can think about is the way his inheritance has been spoiled. By the way, it's probably greed that actually sent the younger brother away to, in the beginning, isn't it? But he can't welcome, he can't mirror the heart of the father because his bottom line is taken on water. It's been damaged. 
he, he can't live the kingdom life in that moment. He doesn't even go into the party at the end of the story. And by the way, I think we're also noticing that he's the one who's robbed of joy. We're talking about that later. It's a real threat to the kingdom way of life. Even the wisdom literature in scripture says so, that greed does real damage to the kingdom way of life, the, the way of life that puts the king in his rightful place. Look at Proverbs chapter 30. It says this, in Proverbs chapter 30, 30, verses 7 through 9. Two things I ask of you, Lord. Do not refuse me before I die. Keep falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread, echoed in Jesus' prayer. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you. Other, uh, other translations say, I may forget about you if I have too much. I may become unaware of my need. It may, I, my riches could obscure my, my awareness of my need for you. Do damage to the humility that's at the core of the kingdom way of life. So I might forget about you. And, and please, not poverty, or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor your name. Just my daily bread, Lord, please. Don't let things come crouch at my door, Lord. Don't let greed come crouch at my door. I know the ax is at the root of that tree. Lord, please, don't let me forget about you. Can I just say I've seen this in real life? One of my favorite places to go is Cambodia. I've been going since 2003. A lot has changed. One of the things that has changed is the spiritual atmosphere of Cambodia. Money has been pouring in, largely from China, but from other places too. I can't tell you how easy it was to strike up a conversation on the streets of Phnom Penh about our shared need of God in 2003. And I can't tell you how people are now becoming insulated from that very same conversation in the streets of Phnom Penh. Used to be you had to ride a bike around the city anyway. Now it's all our convenient Lexus cages, so to speak. I've seen it happen with my own eyes, forgetting the very need that the kingdom life begins with, overfed and unconcerned. Yes, it does real threat to the kingdom way of life, right? Think about the rich young ruler. And Jesus said, you've been keeping all the commands, great. There's only one more thing you gotta do for the kingdom way of life. You gotta sell what you got and give it to the poor. You gotta make sure that you're not trying to serve two masters. Let go of that. You know what he does? He goes away sad again, with the robbing of joy. But he says, okay, kingdom way of life, time to make a choice. Am I going to follow this one who had no place to lay his head? I can't. I, I'm sad about it, but I can't. I can't do it. It's a real threat to the kingdom way of life. Perhaps the most poignant example I can give you is from, <coughs> excuse me, the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians you get to 1 Corinthians, we just took communion today, and Paul says, you think you're taking the Lord's Supper, but I'm telling you, you're not. He says there's a problem at the core of it. He says, so then, in verse 20, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. What's he talking about? What's happening? Okay. First, it's a time of history where there isn't a day off. 
You know who gets to have a day off and go to the Lord's table whenever they feel? The rich. Perhaps, in this case, the overfed and unconcerned. You know what's happening here? The rich have been having a party all day long, and the poor have been working themselves to the bone, waiting for the sun to go down, waiting for their jobs to be at a sufficient place so that they can leave the plow or leave the master's chambers and go celebrate the Lord's Supper. And by the time they get there, there's nothing left for them. What was happening? Greed had gotten a hold of these people in Corinth, and the church was dying because of it. The, the, the people thought nothing of the poor. That's the real kicker. That's the real kicker. The kingdom way of life is to be on the lookout for the poor, for the marginalized. Just read Luke. Do it. Look at how Jesus has an eye for those who are on the margins of society. That's the kingdom life. And yet greed is a real threat to the kingdom way of life. These people had no concerns about the supply, even at the Lord's table, that would be left for the poor when they got there. Paul understood that the kingdom flattens society. What does he say in Galatians other than there is no Greek or Jew, slave or free, male or female. We are all equally in need of God and all equally loved by God. And what greed begins to do as a real threat to the kingdom way of life is it starts to see a hierarchy. It even stops seeing people around you as brothers and sisters, some who have been away from home too long, and instead start seeing brothers and sisters as financial opportunities. That's what greed does. A business connection here. A threat to your business over there. The way Jesus had flattened the kingdom and now greed is threatening to build a tower in its place with rankings all the way up. Yes, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. What we have here is Jesus, who's the way, the truth, and the life, up against the this is the life mentality that we are being discipled by. Let's be honest, if a mall is a temple, then we are being discipled at all times. We have to be aware it's crouching at our door. It is. It is. Every commercial teaching you to want certain things, infusing you with certain desires, it's crouching at our door. It's a real threat to the kingdom way of life, this greed. Not money. Money can be leveraged by the God who has a cattle on a thousand hills and can be used to do amazing kingdom things if we'd only let him. Not money, greed. And it robs us of true joy. We've already seen that the rich young ruler went away sad. We've already talked about the older son who couldn't go into the party. It robbed him of joy that he was so stuck on the bottom line. But let's, re let's reverse it. Let's stop thinking about being robbed of true joy and let's talk about the abundance of life that is the kingdom way of life. It's abundant. Let's look at a few examples. 
Parable of the Good Samaritan. You know it. Who had joy in that story? People who went on by? Propping themselves up on whatever excuse came to mind? Was there joy in that? No. No. They may have thought they had to order their lives in a certain way. There may have been rival religions that had grabbed a hold of their heart in such and such a way. But they didn't have joy. Who might have? Who might have had joy in that story? The Good Samaritan, I think, who stops, binds the wounds, pays for the recuperation at the, at the end, says, actually, here's more just in case he needs more. Who went away with joy that day? Good Samaritan. We might look at Matthew chapter 25. Fascinating couple stories right next to each other. One, the parable of the talents. Certain talents being given. Remember the talents, the gifts, the money itself, not the problem. The posture towards them being the problem. And what we see then, following this story about making the talents grow, um, is a story about taking care of the poor. And Jesus says to a certain group of people, away from me, I never knew you. And that group of people apparently had a blind spot for the poor. But what about this other group that he says to them, good and faithful servant? He says, when you gave a cup of water, you did that for me in my name. When you visited those in prison, maybe they're there because they couldn't pay their taxes. I don't know. When you, when you fed the hungry, this was the kingdom way of life. This is the good and faithful way of life. Can you see the joy in it? Can you see it welling up? Can it start to feel like the way life is meant to be, what money is actually for? I can't think of anything more abundant than the Lord of the universe saying to you, good and faithful. You weren't pulled off track by the things of this world, by the idolatries, the religions that wanted your attention. You stayed the course right with me. You got to experience me. He says, that was me. You got to experience me in a unique way. This is abundant life to experience Jesus here and now. But this has always been true. That, that, to, that to experience God, you lean in to those who are marginalized. To experience that kind of joy, you lean into the margins. How God describes himself over and over again in the Old Testament as the God who cares about the widow, the orphan, and the foreigner. Those three, over and over and over again. As opposed to the gods of Egypt who seem to prop up one or two people at the very top of a pyramid, Pharaoh at the very top. You see, when you look at the Old Testament, you need to see God getting his people out of Egypt and then realizing he needed to get Egypt out of his people. One of the things he had to get out of his, out of his people is this greed. They had this sense of hierarchy as some people as the laborers and some people getting to live the good life right? So what does he tell them? Don't bring those idols into my presence. It doesn't work. And he says, and to reflect my heart, to reflect my image, it looks like this. Like in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 17 through 19, for the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, all these others, Ra, Marduk, they're pretenders, 
the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality, accepts no bribes. Who can give a bribe, kids? The poor cannot bribe you. Accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. See how he wants to get Egypt out of them. Listen to this. And you are to love those who are the foreigners, for you yourself were foreigners in Egypt. See what you experience at the hands of the greedy? Make sure no one else has to. This is the good life. I know there are all kinds of promises being made to the contrary, but I'm telling you, this is the abundant life. It looks like Jesus. Bearing God's image looks like Jesus. You, you can see it maybe one other place, and then we'll be done. When Paul is being brought into the church, they were a little nervous. I think you can see why. A little nervous. This high-class guy who had the power to end people's lives with impunity, meaning he didn't have to worry himself. He could take people's lives, and they're like, ooh, that guy, he's, he scares me. But he said to them, look, I've experienced the living God. I, I, I was met on the road to Damascus by Jesus. He tells his story to them. And in Galatians chapter 2, he says here, they added nothing to my gospel. They added nothing to my understanding of the good story of Jesus. They asked me only to remember the poor. You know what sentence he says? The very thing I was eager to do. The very thing I wanted most desperately to do, to remember the poor. It was welling up inside him. The kingdom way of life was welling up inside him where he no longer saw people as threats but only as brothers and sisters who had been away from home too long. He was no longer arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned, but deeply concerned and joyful to be able to partner with God on that. Greed will rob us of that joy. Yes, in the end, simplicity is a spiritual discipline, even if it may have seemed like a left-hand turn in the book. And yes, it does speed us up, and it does narrow our margins. Imagine a hurried person stopping for the person beat up alongside of the road. One thing about the Samaritan is they had at least some margin to slow down enough to do something about the way the world is that ought not to be true. Yes, simplicity is a spiritual discipline. It is the discipline of saying, God, you have given me these resources for a reason. I don't want to be given to these resources. I want these resources to be given to me. I want them to be used by you for, for, for the good of people who are far flung, who are at the margins of society. Yeah, I think you should read that chapter and see again that greed can be knocking at our door. It's knocking at our door. And it will take discipline, a spiritual discipline, to realize we can't serve both. And there's only one king. And true joy is found in worshiping that king. Let's pray for that kind of discipline. Lord, there are all kinds of gods everywhere we look. We only sometimes don't see it. We're a little blind to that. But you opened the eyes of the blind. You opened Paul's eyes. You opened 
blind Bartimaeus' eyes, open our eyes to the other gods that are taking chunks out of our life, grabbing our attention in ways that we ought not to give it. Give us the discipline to see everything that we've been given as a gift from you and a resource for your kingdom so that the most amount of people could, cons- could experience your joy. We know that true and lasting joy comes from you. It's another one of those good gifts that you give us. Lord, we love you and we pray those things in your son's name. Amen.